Hey. Excuse me. My name is Adam Souza, co-owner of Urban Acres. We are a small craft farm in Taunton, Massachusetts. Uh, we have our license to cultivate, process, and manufacture. We also just dropped our CBD line yesterday. You know, it's being here inspired us to do that. So, uh, you know, we really are about helping the farmers. You know, everybody knows that the farmers aren't doing well right now. And it's not good. You know, they're having to sell their land to uh, these big developments or big corporations. And I don't want that to happen. Farmers built this country up, you know. Uh, so we're, we're really about trying to educate the farmers that hemp is the next crop. And uh, we're <coughs> really about making uh, media that goes around that as well. And uh, Andrew could talk more about the genetic side. Hey guys, my name is Andrew Wilkinson. I too am a co-owner of Urban Acres. Um, so right now, I am trying to do the whole entrepreneurial thing, but I haven't always been this way. Um, I started growing, uh, growing up and really wanted to be in the medical field. So I bounced from job to job, and I was always an average student, C's, B's if at best. Uh, school was never really my thing. But I tried really hard, and I got, I got my degree in medical laboratory science. Um, and I'm not telling you that because I want you to think that I'm smart, because I'm not. It took me a long time, and I graduated like the bottom of my class, right? But I finished, and I worked full-time for a little while, and I realized that I couldn't breathe. I'd, go to, I'd be in the, in the parking lot holding onto my steering wheel, screaming, like, no, I don't want to do this again. So that inspired me to start my own company. It failed. It was horrible. And then I started another one. And I, I would buy things on yard sales, and I'd flip them, and then that worked. That gave me the confidence. And eventually, I stopped working full-time, and I started a vegetable farm. And that was a ton of work. And then Adam started helping me out on the farm, and the farm bill passed. And I saw opportunity. So we went full steam in uh, growing hemp. And... Going back to when I was in school, I really liked genetics. I, I mean, I didn't really like um, everything about it. I knew enough to pass. And now that I'm in the cannabis industry, I've, I've been in the industry for about a year now. What I've, what I've come to know is that I've never been a part of a group that has been so welcoming as this community. And thinking back to what I like about cannabis now, and what I, what I liked in college was the genes, the genetics. Now, cannabis, as you, most of you probably know, it's dioecious. In a male and a female plant, as they cross, every single seed is as unique as a person. So with that genetic diversity, I am super intrigued. And that's where I, pretty much how I got to where I am now. Sounds great. I'm really impressed with everybody. My name's John Dvorak. I've been involved with cannabis and hemp for about 25 years as an advocate, activist. I've been writing about hemp. I realized that hemp has a great history. It's been used for thousands of years, and especially up in New England, all up and down the seacoast. The sailing ships were so important to the economy back then, so I started a hemp history website, hempology.org and trying to document our history, let people know how hemp was used. And then I realized that we really need more education. People need to understand more about all aspects of this great plant. 
So I started the cannabis curriculum, and it's a lecture series that I give when I go over all different topics, as many different topics related to medical marijuana, industrial hemp, and the social issues related to prohibition so that people can understand more about this great plant and let other people know about it. So I do that. I write a lot of articles. I act as a go-between. If people have questions in the cannabis industry, I'll point them in the right direction. So it's, I agree this is a great industry as far as the people. Everybody's very passionate about cannabis, and there's so many things. We're here today to talk about hemp. I call hemp the green buffalo. I'm covered with hemp today from herd to toe. That's why I call it the green buffalo. And it's just amazing all the different things you can use it for and make out of it. And we're going to talk about some of those today. Wow, that was great. That's, that's a tough act to follow right there a little bit. But um, So my name is Brian Quinn. Um, I am the vice president of research and development um, at Mike's company, um, D&G AgTech. I have a bachelor's degree in biology, um, and I had spent the majority of my career um, in biotech manufacturing, fine chemical production, um, as well as uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing. Uh, for me, the, the, this whole industry, I, I feel like I've found my calling. Um, I've been able to, to take you know, experience with equipment and processing and processes and apply it to you know, a new form of medicine potentially um, and take my experiences and, and use them going forward um, in this industry. You know, at the time I didn't realize it, but I was being, I gained all the experience on all the pieces of equipment that our lab just purchased um, over the last 20 years or so. Um, so again, it's been a, 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 an enlightening experience and I feel like I've really found my calling. So that's, uh, that's my story. So glad to be here. Fantastic. And because we have such a diverse group of panelists, I came up with individualized questions so that way they would be able to shine and inspire. I'm going to start with John Dvorak, um, the man that needs no introduction. And uh, when it comes to John, your journey has been hemp and your name and your brand are synonymous with hemp and hemp education. So um, I was wondering, um, with the um, Farm Bill, the 2018 Farm Bill being passed, um, do you see all your hemp dreams coming true, or is there more work to be done? Well, there's a lot of work to be done. Just because we legalized marijuana didn't stop them from putting so many restrictions on it. And our state legislators in Massachusetts are putting all sorts of restrictions on CBD, which is like they're making even more tightly regulated than THC, which is insane. So no, our fight is not near over. We've got a lot of work to do. We have to deschedule it at the federal level and also work at the state levels to make sure that our lawmakers respect us and de you know not treat this like uh, plutonium. It's not plutonium, people. It's a plant, one plant, cannabis, and we have to understand that. Fantastic. And did you have any education about um, Springfield in particular with them? Oh, yeah. Well, and speaking of genetics, okay, and history, this is a history genetics tie-in. The earliest settlers in the Pioneer Valley planted hemp up and down the Connecticut River in the Pioneer Valley almost 400 years ago. So if we could find an old stand of feral hemp or ditchweed, we could call it Pioneer hemp. That sounds a lot better than ditchweed. But <laughs> if we could get 400-year-old genetics and cannabis and use that in tomorrow's hemp industry, 
I think, you know, this is a treasure hunt that I want to put some people on to go look through some old farming records, see where they grew hemp, where, where were the earliest settlers, and then look along creek beds or fence lines. If we can find some feral hemp, then you could really do something with it. And he's a mountaineer. He could probably help. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Mike, my next question is for you. So you hold both a cultivation and extraction license in Connecticut. How has that process been for you? And thank you for your service. Do you find that your um, career in the military helped prepare you for your career in the hemp industry? Um, so we'll start with the latter question first. So um, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily think the Marine Corps helped me form anything that I'm using other than hard work. Um, but uh, I think it gave me a leg up with the brethren and the family of that of whatever armed branch or service. Um, furthermore, first responders, you know, we helped about seven farmers get up and running this year. Um, and three or four of those, well, four of those were actually first responders. So firefighters and police officers. Um, and it's, you know, this is a point in time where um, it gives a lot of people who have worked real hard for a long time a different kind of future. Um, you know, coming out of the Marine Corps, I could either become a police officer or a bodyguard. And those were kind of my options, and I didn't want to do either one of them, primarily because I couldn't make the right decisions that a police officer needs to make. Um, I knew I'd probably end up making a mistake someday that wouldn't be good. Um, and uh, the other options were kind of out. So this brings me full circle, though. You know, my family, our farm is 208 years old, and uh, we're actually saving our farm with this crop. I've been losing money year after year after year after year after year just trying to keep it, primarily because the only place that my kids have ever talked about their great-grandfather have been on that soil and because of that soil. And so if I want my great, great, great grandchildren to talk about me, by God, I hope they keep it alive, right? So um, hemp is literally saving the farm. And I think that goes for pretty much everybody who's in my group, my, that, that's a part of my company, my partners or my employees. Um, it's kind of saving us all one way or another, um, whether it was from a choice of a dreary job or something that was dragging us down literally emotionally and pulling us apart at our seams. Um, or it was an opportunity to financially make a difference and an impact. Um, so what was the first question again? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so how has your journey been? You hold the cultivation license in Connecticut. And as we know, Springfield is close to Connecticut. So do we have anyone from Connecticut in the house? Hey! Let's go, CT! Yukon Huskies! That's right, guys. I'm cool. So that, yeah, that journey, <laughs> that journey has been, a, it's been amazing. I mean, we were originally planning to go up towards Maine and Vermont and into Massachusetts and um, Massachusetts looked like it was going to be the heart for us. Um, and then we heard that Connecticut might legalize. And so a lot of that came from you and the amazing work you do in, in absolutely speaking for all of us in every opportunity that's out there. Um, so I chose to actually start testifying where my career before this in IT and technology was I've had a great career on the other side of the world, and so to combine my world in the cannabis or my involvement in the cannabis world was a very, for me, it was a hard decision to make, and so I became an activist within that, and it changed my life, quite frankly. Um, and uh, being a part of that community, driving that ball from the beginning before it was legal, and being a part of, although I haven't done as many years as some of the other panelists that are out here, it impacted me. And um, so that part of the journey, and then the licensing, you know, I had an amazing team, um, quite frankly. There's people that helped, you know, our team got together to file every single piece of that license that we needed to file with, you know, in our state, we actually have to have um, a research and development plan and a marketing plan. And we had to write an extensive um, process, go through an extensive process to get that license. 
Um, and then we have the manufacturing side, which was from the Department of Consumer Protection. And so there was a lot of nuances. But we got up and running literally in plan at the timing that we needed with partners like, I'm going to kill the name Huber. Is that right? Thank you. Um, I'll, have, I'll, have, <laughs> I'll have Quinn fix me at the end or Brian at the end. But with wonderful partners and wonderful people that are starting new businesses that have just literally helped raise us up, come down, volunteered, helped out, started their own brand of X, Y, and Z. It's just an amazing time. It's an amazing time of a culture that is growing in industry. And I think that is just, it's incredible for us. Thank you, thank you very much. And who in here is from Massachusetts? Fantastic, so it's about half and half, that's great. So our next question goes to Adam, who is a farmer, a hemp farmer here in Massachusetts. Um, so what have your trials and tribulations been with um, getting your license? And what advice would you give being a farmer and like the son of a farmer's farmer? Because like Mike touched on, you know, people are looking to convert their family crops. So could you please speak to those? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, my dad has been a head grower of a local nursery for my whole life. Like literally he would walk by a plant and be like, that's a hibiscus meniscus. And it grows in this climate with the, under these conditions and every single plant. Like he was obsessed with plants. He would take me and I'd plug trays with him when I was seven years old at his nursery. And literally since 2010, I've been telling him, dad need to talk to your boss. Cannabis is a real thing. Ah, I don't know, Adam. I don't know. I don't know. And then 2012, Colorado legalized. And I was like, God, you really need to talk about cannabis to your boss. I heard you're not doing good in business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking about selling the business. It's 2019. They're selling the business. I don't want that to keep happening to farmers, you know. And I never really picked up on the agricultural side until the last three years or so. I was I mostly uh, came up in sales from the from the age of 17 on. I was always into entrepreneurial things, lemonade stands, hustling Pokemon cards, things like that. You know, having fun, and uh, I, you know, got to this point where I, I I found this extreme love for cannabis and saw how much it could help people. Um, I've actually. You know, we're not allowed to say we we uh, cured cancer, but I've helped a couple people not have cancer on their scans anymore, you know, with this amazing plant. And uh, I forgot the second half of that question, or the first half, I think. So, um, oh, what how loopholes does it have been to get a license? So, to, to get to this point of, of you know, loving this plant, uh, like Andrew said, we, we, we decided to hop into hemp. And we uh, applied for our license January 4th. In my mind, January 1st, nobody's working. January 2nd, everybody's hungover, nobody's working. <laughs> so January 3rd is like the first day of the year. We applied on the second day of the year, essentially. We didn't hear back until mid-April. We didn't, which then, you know, we got approved four or five days after that. We got our license in the mail. But, you know, we weren't even able to get seeds until May 2nd. And... If you grow cannabis, you know you want to definitely be growing by March 1st, at least germinating your seeds and getting them to a decent size. So we're already, you know, starting the, from the gate two months behind where we wanted to be. And uh, we didn't get in the ground until June 5th because the weather wasn't really permitting. And, I mean, luckily with a lot of Andrew's great microbiology background and, and building up soil, we were able to have plants that don't look like they were three months behind at all. And, uh, you know, we, we, we came up with this plan in the beginning of 
You know, we're going to start at a tenth of an acre, which is where we're at. That's easily scalable. We figured out, you know, how to scale that up. And now it, we're kind of like just proving everything that we were trying to do, which is, you know, corn is $500 an acre for a farmer and blueberries are like $15,000 an acre. If we could prove to farmers that hemp is $50,000 an acre on the low side, sounds like a pretty easy decision to me as a, as a farmer, you know? And if you could grow really good hemp, you could probably get like 200000 an acre. That, I mean, 15000 for the top agricultural crop of blueberries, 50000 for hemp, you know? Fantastic. <laughs> and it's important for farms to know what their ROI is per acre before they even get started. So if you're in the agriculture section, these are the questions you need to be asking. So I'm going to segue from that into genetics. Um, so what are you seeing with uh, farmers here on the East Coast and the availability of those genetics? And what are you what are you gentlemen doing to help aid that? Yeah. So I just need to clarify. But I am no by no means a professional geneticist. Um, I just it just fascinates me. And like I like I mentioned, um, one thing that I got from college. Uh, was the understanding of genetics. So I, I get it. I understand how it works. And so I've been dabbling. And one thing that I noticed right away, I've been, I got my hemp license last year. And one of the things that we noticed in Massachusetts was that seeds were impossibly hard to come by. And, and it goes to show you, we were, we were speaking with uh, Sarah Grubin from, the, from MDAR. She said that of the 100-plus licenses that were given out in Massachusetts, half of the farmers couldn't grow because they couldn't get seed. Now, growing in Massachusetts is hard, but it's especially hard if you're using genetics from California or Colorado, Oregon. Um, now, if you're using genetics from Massachusetts, seasoned, then it's not so hard because the plants are acclimated to our climate. So the, the biggest thing that I would recommend anybody that wants to get into hemp is to find genetics that have been in the area for a while because you can get Colorado genes right now, but it's going to take three seasons of growing to get a really, really strong base. You start with vigor. You go vigor, the strongest plants, strongest plants, and then from those, you look for outliers. So the three things in genetics that I look for is three O's. You're looking for outliers. That's the genetic diversity that I had mentioned earlier. Everyone is so unique. Every seed, no two seeds are the same. The second thing is observation. What you don't see, you can't notice. When you're growing and, and have a breeding project or something in mind, it's important to notice everything. And not to just say, okay, I'm going to grow for an extravagant terp profile. I mean, you can have that in mind, but you might not come across it. Um, and the third thing is uh, record keeping. Okay, being, um, what's the word? It starts with an O. Um, keeping, keeping good collection, knowing what's uh, staying organized. Um, if, if, you, if you're not organized, you know, oh, like what plant was this? You're done. It's, it's over. Your, your whole genetic um, aspirations are shot out of the dark. So just really be focused on the task at hand. Um, again, uh, Adam mentioned uh, 
soil. Soil is super important, but I'd say even more important is starting with a strong base. Fantastic. And last but certainly not least, Brian, so we've got our education, we have our genetics, we have our farmers, and now we're to you, the processor. You hold the, or together you guys hold the only processing license in all of Connecticut currently, and how has that, how has that been? I think there's more than one license that's been handed out or you know given out. Uh, I believe we're the first to be up and running process. Awesome. Um, it, it's been great. Uh, it's been a long road um, to where we're at right now. We've gone through several different rounds of um, equipment. And we just got some new equipment delivered uh, this past week. So our lab is, um, is finally up and running. Um, so it's been great, yeah. Fantastic. And, um is there anything that um, the audience should know from an extractor, extractor's point of view if it comes to like things like genetics or knowing like state laws or anything that you care to elaborate on? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's you're going to make if you're extracting, you know, you're going to make your life a lot easier if you have the more CBD you put into the extraction process, the less labor is going to be involved to turn out your final product. Uh, you want to run that extraction stream as concentrated as you possibly can. So all that time you spend recovering, um, you know, there's different ways to do it. Um, but in our process, you end up recovering alcohol. You can use different solvents. Uh, we're using an ethanol solvent, ethanol as our solvent. Um, and we spend a lot of time recovering that alcohol so we can put it back into the process. Um, we can maximize our efficiency by having that stream as concentrated as possible going in. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, you know, the other the other piece of it is um, so it depends on what you're making, right? So you're going to extract. What are you going to do with that extract? Are you selling, or looking to just use it as um, you know crude oil, as we refer to it? Are you going to refine that uh, crude oil into um, you know into distillate? Are you going to make isolate from that refined oil? Um, so you know. There's there's three very three or four very you know distinct processes there um, that that use specialized equipment. Um, so you know ha have a plan for for what you're going to do with uh, with the oil or you know before you um, purchase your equipment and set out down that road. So yeah, perfect. So planning ahead is a lot of what we're hearing. And because this is a, a hemp panel that's meant to inspire others to get into the hemp industry, I was wondering, um, is there anything in particular that has motivated any one of you to possibly change your career fields and get into hemp? And what advice would you give to those possibly looking to get into the hemp sector? I'll, I'll answer that right off the All bat. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I got laid off from my from my job at a chemical engineering firm um, in February, and I had already been working with Mike on the side. So that, that was pretty much all I needed. Um, but yeah. Oh, perfect. And yeah, mine's kind of the same. I uh, like I said, I started hopping into cannabis. I was working a high level sales job at T Mobile, and you know, in month two, we hit the the yearly goal, and I was like, okay, that's awesome. Can I have a raise? Uh, you haven't been here for a year yet. You shouldn't ask for a raise. I'm like, yeah, but I made you guys a million dollars already. They're like, okay. And like a few days later, they called me. They're like, so that position you're in, we're getting rid of it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's great. What am I? What's gonna happen? They're like, well, you're gonna come interview and for a different position. 
and then they waited till the end of the month. They said my position was gone March 31st. They waited till March 28th to interview me and then offered me like an entry level position. And I was like, wait a second, you're not firing me. You're laying me off. Do I get unemployment? Like, yep. I was like, cool. And then just spent all of my money literally on growing cannabis and learning how to grow cannabis. <laughs> like, and here we are, you know, we, him and I started a podcast together and um, like you mentioned, I helped him on the farm, and the whole time I was on the farm, I was probably talking his ear off about how I was going to get into the game with THC cartridges and stuff like that, and all the different things that are going on with cannabis, and then when we started the podcast and the hemp bill happened, everything just clicked in full gear, and it's just been no looking back since then, you know. We both work jobs to pay our bills and both put 80 hours a week each into into this business, so it's it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of hard work, dedication, sleepless nights not hanging out with friends or uh you know my seven month old daughter <laughs> so it's it's a lot you know but when you love the plant and you want to help people it's it's worth it fantastic anybody else john or mike or andrew <laughs> uh, one thing that really inspired me uh it just kind of felt like my whole life kind of felt like being held underwater that structure, school never was my thing. I had to do this at this time. I just hated it. And I realized I jumped job to job thinking, oh, no, 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 this next thing that I'm going to be doing, I'm going to like that much better because this is horrible. And then I'd get into that thing and then I'm like, no, this is just as bad as what I was doing before. And then the final thing was, oh, okay, medical laboratory science. That's microbiology, working in the lab and with chemistry. That's it. No, it wasn't it. And then I realized this is not for me. So what really inspired me was wanting to escape. I wanted to escape and get free. I wanted to break the shackles. So what I did was I worked really hard. I worked 80 hours a week. I didn't really see anyone. I didn't spend any money. I ate a lot of chickpeas. I still eat chickpeas. <laughs> uh, and... And one day, I, I was actually watching somebody called Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's, uh, he's, a, he's a serial entrepreneur. And he was doing this thing back in 2017 called the 2017 Flip Challenge. You'd go to garage sales and, and places with extreme discounts. You'd buy the stuff and then sell it on another platform like Facebook Marketplace or LetGo or, or what have you, eBay. And that started working for me. So after the whole summer of 20, 2017, I started making some money and was, was doing the full-time thing. And then I realized, okay, I can do this. So I, went, I gave myself a, a day off. I went to the Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I didn't spend any money. I just brought a tent and I found like a place in the woods. And what, I, what happened on that trip is I get, got the confidence to sit down in front of my boss and say, hey, I want to cut down. And ever since then, jumping in, even though I'm half in, I'm still somewhat in, in, a, in a gray area, and that was the inspiration that I need. And if you feel smothered every day, look for the opportunity right now. Hemp, if we put opportunity from a scale from zero to 10, where hemp is on the global stage, we're at zero. The market is wide open. This is the opportunity right now. If you've just been looking for that one thing, that one trigger, of inspiration, find it this weekend. Hemp is an opportunity. And it seems like you all already see that. You're here. Fantastic. Mike and John, do you have anything to add? 
Um, yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of ways you can answer this kind of this question ultimately. But for me, it all comes down to originally it all came down to the most profitable agricultural crop that I could grow as a farmer, period. That's what it became. Um, and hemp was absolutely out and above everything else that was there. Basil is seasonal. I, I can go through the array and I won't. As a farmer, it became the thing that was going to save my farm. And that was the bottom line. And then you get into the numbers and you're floored and you, you can't believe it. And so then you get into the people that are going to form businesses around it. And, and I'll be honest, my technology career has, has been a great one. I was lucky enough to write a couple books for IBM early in my career, which ended up becoming what we call cloud computing today. Um, and so I've had a great career. Um, I'm leaving an amazing career, but I'm leaving that career because what I found is how much my team being together actually means how successful we can be in building something from grassroots nothing. Cloud computing had a huge return on investment. It was tens to twenties of billions of dollars within its first few years. This industry has the same exact potential, only it's not going to be AT&T making the money. It's not going to be all of the large telecoms and the Microsofts. It are going to be, it's going to be the people in this room who start right now and find some way to tie into this industry. We're talking $23 billion within the next 15 years. That's greater than any number of technology that's been out there. So realistically, the opportunity in this was what made every one of my team, who all had great careers, abandon where we were going and start driving in a whole new direction. And so, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the best answer for that. Fantastic, and John? Everyone, everyone's passionate about it, right? That's, exactly. that's the thing you're seeing. You're gonna, I just want to add, you know, one of the things I hear from a lot of people is that, you know, the fear of like the Philip Morrises and, and the, the alcohol companies and everything like that buying people out and they've already invested billions of dollars. But, you know, when you really think about it, we have the advantage because we have more of an understanding and then, you know, through a lot of conversations that I've had with Andy, and I don't want to butcher the story, he told me a story about the Wright brothers, and I want you to tell it because I'm going to butcher the hell out of it. <laughs> so in the early 1900s, uh, the, there was a race, and the race was to get to the sky. There were big companies, obviously, back then, and they were putting a lot of money. They were confident. They were cocky. They said, you know what, we're going to get the best scientists, we're going to get the best engineers, and we're going to give them a bunch of money. And that's what they did. And then you had the Wright brothers. They had a bicycle shop and very little money, right? They didn't have the resources, but what they did have, heart and re resourcefulness. They didn't give up. And that's exactly the technology that we use today. Uh, well, it started it, nonetheless. I will, I will throw in, we are at the very beginning, the ground floor. We're inventing, creating an entire new industry, which, in my opinion, will be a trillion-dollar industry. Yes, multi-trillion. Um, cannabis and hemp, you know, medical marijuana, adult recreational use, and hemp. So it doesn't matter what you want to do. Do you want to grow? Do you want to extract, make edibles, delivery systems, security systems, you know, and then we got the whole hemp environment. So there's so much out there we need to do. And it's incumbent on us as leaders of the hemp industry and the cannabis industry, many of you are, we need to incorporate hemp into our products. Hemp business cards are the easiest thing everybody can have. 
show that you care about hemp and the environment. If you have a giveaway t-shirt, make it out of hemp. If you're building an add-on building, use hempcrete, you know, or add hemp seed oil to your CBD products. So there's so much that we can do as industry leaders to increase the demand for hemp so that our farmers will have more incentive to grow it. Just to add to John's point, Forbes says that, you know, this is going to be an $11 billion market by 2024. And I literally laugh at that because like you're saying, hemp by itself is going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry. And if you think about it on the, on those terms, even if everybody has a million dollar company, there's a lot of millions in a trillion, you know? So there's a lot of room for everybody and we don't have to feel like anybody's stepping on anybody and, you know, we don't have to tear down other buildings in order to raise ours. Absolutely. And as we all know, during the gold rush, the first person to make a million dollars wasn't the people panning. It was the guy selling the shovels. So what kind of ancillary businesses can you do to maybe accommodate what they're doing or start something completely new? Um, we have about 15 minutes left and we have a great audience. We have a great panel. We have a really cool mic. Would anybody like to ask some questions? I can come to you. Don't be shy. Perfect. All right. I'll start in the middle and I'll work my way back. And as you think of them, raise your hand. All right. Here you are, sir. Yeah, but what if he doesn't catch it? <laughs> um, yeah, so I appreciate whatever, what all you were saying. Uh, and I think the farm aspect of it, uh, you know, I have a small farm in upstate New York, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really fallow farmland all over New York. And, you know, as a economic driver, I think for farms, like you were saying, uh, I don't know, uh, on, the, on the left there, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, most of the people in upstate New York grow hay because hay is the easiest crop to grow. Uh, you know, it yields probably about $800 an acre. And, um, it's very carbon, uh, you know, and, and, and fuel intensive to, to grow. Uh, but if you were a small farm, uh, what kind of machinery would you need to get to grow hemp? Um, you know, and then in terms of like, um, like, it, you know, uh, getting it out of the field, uh, dealing with the, dealing with the, the moisture. I, I have a friend who's growing hemp in um, uh, North Carolina. He's got a hundred acres, but I mean, he said that the amount of biomass was uh, very difficult to handle. Drying it was impossible. You know, it got moldy, you had to throw it away. So I mean, like in terms of like, um, you know, you guys are talking about a tenth of an acre. I think a lot of the small farms around here are probably 10 times that. So what? how would you start if you were a farmer? Oh man, drying is definitely a huge issue. And that's probably where I would begin if, if you were facing all of those type of obstacles. Um, you know, shipping containers really aren't a lot of money. And if you fabricate them, there's not even that much more money. So at scale, you know, even with an acre, you could, by our calculations, we could fit like an acre within one of those shipping containers. So, you know, it is an investment, but it's a different crop and you're making more money. So you're expected to pay a little bit more, you know, for an investment. That's, that's what happens. Um, air drying it in a shipping container. What's that? You're talking about air drying it in a shipping well, you're basically fabricating the shipping container to be uh, climate controlled. And just to add to that for small farmers, so right now we're at a tenth of an acre and we're expanding to about a te uh, 10 acres. Uh, and we don't, we don't plan on going any heavy machinery whatsoever. 
we uh we kind of grow humboldt style you know we uh low stress train mainline them down so the entire plant is tops we don't have christmas tree plants we have six foot spacing and we grow them gigantic they're six feet by 10 feet wide so you know we're we're expecting to get high yields off of them and that's how you know we're, we're able to confidently tell farmers that they could get 50 to two hundred thousand dollars an acre and you know you just have to follow these methods it's going to be a lot less plants you know some i've heard of some farms growing like i don't know thirteen thousand plants on an acre is that accurate ellen yeah yeah so like that's you know we're doing a tenth of that and that's a tenth of the work and i i personally i don't know how andrew feels about this but i'm of the belief that you know uh, that heavy machinery is going to affect your final product unless you're doing like all electric vehicles, you know, you're going to have exhaust and toxins blowing out into your, into your field. Possibly you might have some kind of oil leak that gets into your soil and then into your buds. So those are things we worry about as, as artists and growers, because in, in new England, we don't have the room to grow industrial hemp. We have to grow artisan hemp. We don't have the options of 30,000 uh, acre farms like in Kansas, you know. So New England and I, I think New York, too, need to kind of come together and will be a, a hub of hemp, I believe. So, and, and I would just throw out one, one other way of looking at this, right? So soil reclamation is a huge thing for the USDA. And so, so one of the biggest grants that you can get from them right now is based on soil reclamation and putting up hoop houses and being able to control the environment and feed an organic nutrients back into your soil. Um, that's step one. Uh, step two is the mulchification or mulching this hemp plant back into that soil after your first growth. You will be blown away at how well it's gonna help you to recover that soil. So as far as actually saving our soil, this plant is tremendous in it. Not only in the first growth cycle that you do, but you flip two growth cycles or a full growth cycle, that doesn't mean you have to take them to full blood. These, these, this plant is gonna pull the, the wicked from the soil and leave behind a, a healthier soil from its original growth. And, and as you add that nutrient layer, staying organic, you can reclaim that soil. Um, and again, you can get hoop houses and other things from the USDA that, that can help you within that. Um, so I would look to um, organizations to help in that space. Um, and so to the point that was made, stay small with your first grow, know what you're doing. Um, if you're already a cultivator and especially if you're already doing tomatoes or other things along those lines, or you're already growing as a farmer, um, then, you know, maybe grow a couple of acres that are going to be a couple of different strains so you can see how they act, but they're going to cross pollinate. There's going to be lots of problems that are, but take your trial year, run with your trial year and know it's a trial year. It's the same thing as any other crop. You've got to learn it. It's going to have its pitfalls. It's going to have its mold or its blight or it's something else. Um, you know, it, this one just, you can either take care of it a lot or grow it industrially. If you grow it industrially, you're growing huge numbers of acres and you don't care and you're putting it out there and what you get from the yield, you get from the yield and you're bringing in vehicles and tractors to till it all up. But there's a market for all of the products you're going to end up having, right? So I would never treat my buds that way. <laughs> I just, I don't think we'll ever go to that level. We're going to also take care of every plant by hand, um, harvest every plant by hand. Um, but we also, uh, that, that brings jobs too, to some extent, right? So, uh, it depends. This, this product will offer us the ability to increase the price and the rate that we're giving to our people. Our company personally, we do, you know, we do an employee share of the, the company's pro, um, um, profits. So we do a profit share back. And so, um, 
hopefully this year is an amazing year. That's all I got to say from there. <laughs> Fantastic. Can we have our next question? Uh, guys, I have a question on genetics. Um, do you think genetics have to be broken down to a state-by-state -state level? Or do you think that you can regionalize genetics and say this genetic will grow well in the New England area, in mid-Atlantic, and then West Coast and such? I think regional is absolutely the way to go. And with that said, I think we all need to work hard together because like, like I mentioned, like Colorado, California, New England, they're all super different. But if you get strains that work well for you, then you can focus on a specific um, breeding forecast. Uh, for example, uh, I'm working right now on one plant that has an unbelievable terp profile, smells more like grapes than grape ape. And then another variety I'm working on has like this unbelievable branching structure and the root health and root vigor. It's un unreal. So with those two, um, I'm going to keep running with the terp profile. So of the progeny seed that I get with this one, uh, going to continue of those maybe 10% are outliers and smell even more unbelievable, and so on and so forth. Uh, originally, when I started the season, my idea was to pick the 10 best and then kind of go with that and just kind of keep going best to best to best instead of staying linear. I'm going to stay linear because I kind of think of it as like a seven-year-old kid, right? If you see a seven-year-old kid, he's, and he's the best drawer in his class, but he sucks at gym, I'm not going to give him a gym regimen. I'm going to give him a pencil. Do, do what you do well. And it's the same thing with cannabis. I'm going to find these phenotypes that are really magnificent. And instead of improving on its faults, improve on what it's already good at and stabilize it. Once I've got two stabilized genes, now it's time to cross them. If we're all working together in our area, our region, now we can combine our efforts into one. Say, hey, um, I've got a friend, Ben, who's also growing. Listen, Ben, I've got this unbelievable terp profile. What have you been working on? And he says, you know what? I found in incredible CBD percentages. Now we cross the two and we find in a new cultivar that has a mix of both unbelievable terps and CBDs to match. Fantastic. Anyone have anything to add before we go to our next question? Stay on the treasure hunt for good seeds that are that are legacy. Yeah, yeah. So we might do that. That sounds like a fun adventure, right? Go go treasure hunting for legacy seeds. I got some land. I'm gonna check out when I get home. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> look what you started, John. <laughs> Nezra. Okay, I'll uh, I'll have a two part question unless somebody's dying to ask questions and I'm denying somebody else. Go for it. Two and then one and then. Okay. Uh, so my first question re is regarding um, the chemistry of terpene profiles. There's been quite a bit of evidence that terpenes help to influence the experience uh, chemically. Um, so are you doing anything to seek out, uh, let me say, Kush variety, you know, uh, hemp or cookies variety hemp? Can I just, can I just start real quick? Um, how many people have held in the room have held more than like four buds of hemp? Can you just raise your hands? Okay. So on my point here, really, I think it's all brand new. So my point is I'm looking for what some of the best is. You guys are answering more on you've been focused on this, but I think I can't wait to see where 
I can't wait to see what's growing, especially this season. And then two years from now, woohoo! So anyway. Uh, so yeah, I mean, terpenes are unbelievable. The science and the the studies behind them show that it really enhances um, whatever hemp or right traditional cannabis. Uh, it was told to me earlier that CBD isolate, if you look at it, it's it's sort of like a guitar soloist. It's super important. Everybody knows it, um, but it's not the whole thing. Now, if you take all the cannabinoids, all the terps, and put them together, now you have an orchestra, right? It moves mountains. Mm. Um, right now, I'm working, or the two of us are working on uh, fruity profiles. But the, the second I get my hands on a, a good uh, gassy strain or an earthy strain, guaranteed I'm going to work my butt off to try to pull those terpene profiles and weave it into an already dominant, strong CBD cultivar. Okay. Um, and my second question is, we have, we're blessed with a lot of fertile land in the United States. Um, but when you lay it over China or Russia, it doesn't seem so big. So given that uh, we know there's quite a bit of hemp coming out of China and um, to a lesser extent, Russia, how do you suppose in a post-prohibition era, uh, U.S. will will fare against, um, you know, Russia and China on the international stage? That's a very tough question. I guess we're going to, I mean, but they are growing like several hundred million acres of corn, cotton, soy, and wheat in North America. So there's a lot of farmland out there, but you're right, it's going to be going to be hard to tell. But I think what we're going to have to focus on is all the different uses of hemp, you know, because you can make the hemp creed out of it, the plastic, the fuel, clothing, food. So if we utilize all those different uses of the cannabis plant, then hopefully we will be able to do it and grow that hemp here and use it as a regenerative effect to regenerate local economies like we have out here in Western Mass. A lot of these old mill towns with buildings sitting idle. We need to grow the cannabis out there and bring it into the mill towns so we can help create self-sustaining economies. And in the Midwest where there's a lot of farmland out there, hopefully we can do a similar thing and just fully utilize all the aspects of the cannabis plant. You know, at a, at a minimum, reduce the amount that we're importing, right? I mean, there's we can commit more land to it, and I think once people start to see what what that looks like, and I feel like the U.S. is a leader in cannabis growing in general, like around the world, especially like when you look at, I mean, California is like the highest, one of the highest regards in the U.S. You know, um, so our quality is definitely going to beat theirs, and we have Canada just right there waiting to be our allies in this in this fight against keeping chinese stuff out well and just to add one more thing you know we talked about it right in the beginning storage it's all about i i in connecticut i cannot process flour into oil that does not pass the mold tests if it has anything in it i can't process it in my state right so for other states where you're able to take your stuff and you're able to bring it to extraction because it does have mold or other variations, our laws, I think, are going to be more more stringent towards us actually having to follow and have compliant, compliant material to go into the process. And ultimately, 
if somebody can ship something from China that stays that well kept all the way back over here and we can't do it on our own soil and beat that price, then something's sorely wrong. But something's been sorely wrong many a time. So I guess that's really no answer at all. So, yeah. Does anyone have anything to add before we go to our next question? All right, nurse. Yeah, I'm experimenting with growing a little bit of hemp in Virginia. My brother and I put in, we're allowed to have an acre, but I think we only have about half an acre of hemp. But I can see right now because I'm, I'm sort of an ag tech and I've kind of got the plants pretty much out of control. And uh, I don't know how the hell we're going to deal with all that, all that vegetative mass and trying to dry it. I mean, uh, I've got friends of mine that have barns and they've offered, but I mean, I'm, I, I just don't know what to do. I mean, you're talking about a container. Are you putting air conditioning or dehumidification in there? So, so, so real quick, there, there's, there's multiple ways to dry this. It depends on what your market is that you're taking this product to. So if you're, dry, if you're drying to put it into a nice container or to sell it as flour that's actually going to sit in a bag, that is a curing process and a drying process that you want to be meticulous with. To blast dry, there's, freeze, there's, there's numerous ways to go about stopping that material from going to the next stage of degradation. And so, yes, please, but just know that there are, it depends on your use case of it. So please, yeah. Yeah, yeah like you're saying that you can flash freeze it, you could freeze dry it if you could do that at scale. Um, you know, the, the, the drying solutions, it would, all, it would all be climate controlled so you'd be able to get your turns out faster if you were able to like flash freeze it and then were able to dry it or process some of it. You know, you'd have to, it is some figuring out, but uh, with, typically with the, uh, the shipping container, you have a lot of room in there and you could do multiple layers in there and it's, it's a small enough space where it's, it's easy to climate control. And uh, Have you tried anything with vacuum at all? Yeah, you could vac seal as well. It's, uh, but main, you don't want to do, I wouldn't keep it that way for too long. If you know you're going to be processing you're very shortly after, you know. Lose all them or what? Well, va vacuum would suggest you're freeze drying. Right? Yeah, flash freeze it and vac it. You just think vacuum itself, no? No, because you're leaving the plant, plant matter touching some type of plastic True. and it's going to biodegrade, right? So the Vacuum and heat will pull water, yeah. Uh -huh. Something else that you may want to consider is harvesting in sections. So that might make it a little bit more manageable with the amount of biomass that you do have is harvest the first third of the plant. And that's going to increase. It's shown to increase uh, yields almost up to 40 percent if done right. So you harvest the top of the plant, what's ready first, and then you work on drying that and then you harvest the next bit and the next bit. And that might help out a little bit. OK, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. And our last question. Hi, I've got a question about the THC level. It's supposed to be 0.3 or under, correct? For yes. hemp. Can you grow it more than that and make it a really nice strain with a full entourage effect with both CBD and THC? So a lot of, a lot of things, uh, cannabis, everyone in, at least in Massachusetts, can have at least 12 plants. Um, so hemp is cannabis. Cannabis is cannabis. So... I would say that, yes, you could have, I mean, at least 12 as long as you're following the rules and the laws. 12. What happens is when you, when you breed a really strong, high CBD-containing um, hemp plant and a really strong THC plant, you mix them together, you're going to get a broad array of phenotypes, expressions. You're going to get some that have just the THC. You're going to get some that have just CBD. You're going to get some one-to-ones and everything in between. Now, a lot of people are forecasting in the industry that one-to-ones are going to be the place to be 
especially the people that are just being introduced into THC, they don't want to get wrecked right off of a uh, a 200 milligram cookie. They they want to ease into it, right? They might want the therapeutic effects, and one to one seems to be giving people just that. So you can get some unbelievable strains by crossing THC genetics with CBD. And not only can you get unbelievable new strains that don't exist on the market today, but you're introducing some amazingly clean genetics. Because hemp, we're going down like ACDC, which is like two variants away from the first real discovered CBD. So if you put those into a well-bred THC, let's say there's 10,000 named varieties, you can trace that all the way down to like 12, maybe, whatever. Now, if you introduce brand new hemotypes and, and hemp varieties, you're basically starting over and giving the whole plant unbelievable vigor, and you can get stems that are a foot in diameter, um, unbelievable vigor, just by cleaning up the genetics a little bit. Hmm. Are you allowed to do that on those hemp farms? Um, we can't. So the state of Connecticut, if it's not below 0.3, it's not on my farm. Yeah, and then that's going to vary state to state. Were you asking like more, can the consumer grow, can like just a regular person grow hemp? I'm talking about on your farms, can you create these new things? With the oh, so. Connecticut, no. <laughs> it's complicated. It's Yeah, it's not very easy at all to because of the, the regulations and everything right now. I don't think we're really able to we're not we're definitely not able to do anything one-to-one or anything like that you know so but (laughs) our genetics could be crossed into somebody that is able to do it and you know personally we could do it but not on the farm Yeah, just to clarify this would be a small scale personal staying within your laws now i do want to address the 0.3 percent requirement the farm bill required defines hemp as cannabis with less than 0.3 percent EHC. However, I see a future where that restriction is removed. I call that, that that's an arbitrary limit. I call it a catch 422 because it's an illogical barrier in our way. I see farmers growing thousands of acres of hemp, of cannabis with varying cannabinoid profiles. It just depends on what your the end use is. So we need to get rid of that 0.3 restriction and grow cannabis hemp. Yeah, that point three number was from what, one scientist from one study from one plant 40 years ago. <laughs> wow. So it is already, it's a little past uh, 410, if you can believe it. Just like all good things, this must come. Almost 420. I know. And there's nowhere we'd rather be than this panel, but I know that the, uh, the mic guy would like to get on home, our AV guy. Thank you so much. Thank you. But before we say goodbye... The fortune is in the follow-up. So how do we follow up with these fantastic panelists? Because I know if you don't have questions now, you're definitely going to have them later. So if you could just please give me your name and, uh, you know, your company. How do we follow up? Do you have a Facebook, Instagram, you know, in the World Wide Web? Yeah, so Mike, good enough. Uh, yes to the Facebook. Yes to um, the, the one, easiest one to remember is Sweet Heal. That's our brand. It's not the actual DG Ag Tech, but... Sweet Heal will bring you to, to our landing zone of everything that we do. Um, we're associated um, by all of our points of interest, be it Instagram, uh, Facebook, www, you, you name it, we're all in all formats. So um, pick us up, ask questions, like, come down and visit our, our location, walk through one of your, your first uh, locations and, and uh, see, see our process in running. And you have a booth here? 
We do, and we have a booth at uh, four. Six hundred. Six hundred. Booth six hundred. Come see us over there too. Heck yeah. My name is Adam Souza. S O U Z A. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. What did Adam say? And uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter uh, at Urban Acres. H E R B A N A C R E S. Kind of like the Mickey Mouse theme song. If you keep that playing in your head, you'll be able to spell it out. It'd be good. <laughs> yes, the few people laughed. I thought, I thought I'd be the only one. Um, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah. And you have a booth here as well. Right? Yeah, we have a booth here. Look for the orange tent. <laughs> 803 we're the only orange tent though like it, it just walk you'll see us uh, again my name is andrew wilkinson with urban acres uh we are on all platforms we have a podcast aa for entrepreneurs uh my instagram is just drew it and the i is a one um if you've ever thought about throwing pollen on another plant i'm, I'm sticking around here for the next hour hour and a half i'd love to uh, chop it up with you reach us reach out on instagram facebook any anything i'd love love to talk to you cool john dvorak empology.org and cannabis curriculum i'm on facebook youtube and look me up boston.hemp at pobox.org thanks ellen fantastic thank you john and Brian Quinn, uh, you can find me in the same place you can find Mike. That's sweetheel.com, S-W-E-E-T-H-E-A-L, sweetheel.com. Thanks, everyone. Fantastic. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, and uh, can we please get a big round of applause? All right. Thank you guys so much.